We're going to begin a series tonight on the uh, miracles of Jesus primarily, and I was told that on Tuesday nights, that's a topic, I didn't know that, but uh, how many of you are involved in the Tuesday night group talking about miracles? Okay, so most of you are not, so um, I don't think there'll be too much of repetition or interference with it as I envision what I'm doing and what you're doing on, on Tuesday nights. But to get into that uh, subject, I thought we'd better begin with miracles in the Bible, with that topic, dealing with the subject of miracles. And then we'll eventually move to the miracles of Jesus, broadly considered, and then um, look at some examples of his miracles in future weeks. Imagine picking up the Bible for the very first time. And suppose you are an exceptional speed reader, and you can read it all the way through in one sitting with retention. I were to ask you, uh, who is the central character in the Bible? You would, of course, say God himself. What is God like? Well, among other things, he's supernatural, far above our natural world. And then you might realize that he has intervened supernaturally into the affairs of this world, especially by miracles. In Psalm 105, verse 5, we read, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. Acts 2.22, Peter's sermon at the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Then the writer of the Hebrews, one of the apostles, wrote these words in Hebrews chapter 2. After referring to such great salvation, he says, It, that great salvation, was declared first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So that's all well and good, and probably everyone here tonight accepts the miracles of the Bible and, in effect, believes that they really occurred. But that's not the way it's been down through the the centuries. The question has been asked over and over and over again, how are we to believe the miracles of the Bible really happened? Let me give you some examples of criticism of the Bible, of Bible miracles. Actually, during the ministry of Christ... In Mark 3.22, and the scribes who came to, down from Jerusalem were saying, He, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So they occurred Jesus of doing these miracles by the, the supernatural work of, of the devil. In ancient heathenism, uh, all kind, they believed in all kinds of gods. They're very polytheistic, and they attributed the miracles of Jesus did to another god who lived about the same time, another man, called Apollonius. And they said that he was a god just like this other man. Um, But at least these kind of views accepted the idea of supernaturalism. They acknowledged other gods or or the devil, demons. But at least uh, what, what has happened is 
that although that view has prevailed down through centuries, it was the view of Augustine, it was the view of the Reformers, but the last 200 years or so, a different worldview has appeared, a new scientific worldview, which professes to explain everything without the aid of any supernatural action, purely from natural forces operating within unvarying natural laws. And so they, in effect, say, how could miracles possibly occur the way natural laws are? Very briefly, give me, I'll give you some illustrations. Rousseau, the famous philosopher, remove the miracles and you will have the world at the feet of Jesus Christ. In other words, that interferes with people coming to Jesus Christ because of these miracles. If we just get rid of them, people would have a more interest in, in Jesus. David Hume, the uh, skeptic, so it always is more probable that miracles, a miracle is false rather than true. It's more likely that the attesting witnesses were deceived or willing to be deceived than that any miracle took place. No miracles have happened, nor can they happen. Schleiermacher, one of the uh, leaders of the liberalism movement, which led to the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church eventually, the miracles in the Bible are relative miracles. That is, for those in regard of whom they were first done, Christ simply had a deeper acquaintance with nature than any other that ever lived, able to evoke, as from hidden resources, powers which none other could. So it was the fact Jesus had a better understanding of natural laws, and he was kind of able to influence people into thinking of something special. Heinrich Paulus. Miracles were accounted for by the children of that age. Christ's disciples wanted to see miracles, even though they only were experiencing everyday normal natural activities done by Jesus, who allowed them to enjoy their imaginations. There's some natural explanation, but we don't know what it is. But here are some of the explanations. The, the impotent man in John chapter 5 was only an imposter. The... Um, Water was not changed to wine. There were simply some men that went out and got some wine, brought back. Jesus did not walk on water, only along the shore. So you see, these natural things were occurring, and Jesus or whoever took advantage of that. And these people were so gullible, they were such children of their age, that they were willing to believe anything. And so they embellished all these things as if they were miracles, supernatural things. But really, they weren't, according to that view. Another fellow named Strauss, miracles simply are a conceived halo of glory for the infant church, in which Christ appeals to the longings of men for deliverance over disease and nature and victory over death. So the same idea, embellishments of certain things that normally happen. More recently, in the, at least in the 20th century, a, a newspaper columnist named Sidney J. Harris said this, I do not happen to believe in the so-called miracles described in the Bible, not because I think they are impossible, but because I consider them to be trivial. They are mostly primitive folk tales, unworthy of a cosmic deity. Modern miracles disclose a creative power and imagination of infinitely greater domain and sophistication and magnificence than ever dreamed of in ancient Palestine or anywhere else in the world. Those are just a few of the many, many criticisms that have come against miracles of the Bible. So seemingly, the 21st century church, we have our work cut out for us 
how do you deal with this? And people would come up to you or, and say, well, do you believe in these miracles? How could that possibly be? We, we've left all that behind. We're now in the 21st century of technology and scientific advances and that sort of thing. Well, let's enter into that, that work uh, beginning tonight. There are several, first of all, look at some essential statements. First, the terms that are used. You might have noticed in a couple of the passages I read for a moment ago that these words appeared. Wonders, signs, powers, and works. Not the name miracle itself, although that appeared also a couple of times. Wonders would be astonishments produced upon the beholders. They, they see this and they're astonished. Their mouth drops open. That's an astonishment. They're called signs, tokens of God's nearness and working, evident things which help explain obscure things. God presents a sign, gives a sign of some kind, like an object lesson. Powers would be the mighty divine actions, the, the biggies, the big miracles that God performed in their effect. Works would apply mostly to the miracles of Jesus, the amazing things that he did, which were greater than any works by men. And so they were called the works of Jesus, the works of God. Now, we can consider the subject of miracles in a very broad way by saying this. Everything that God does, all that he has created, all of his actions and works wrought in the world are miracles. The continual recurrence of the ordinary things that happen in the natural world, well, that's miraculous. God is sustaining that. God uses the means of what he has created in the first place to bring all ordinary things to pass. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So all these natural things that happen, it's because God is behind that, holding it together. Hebrews 1, verse 3. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So that's what we can say, broadly considering, everything is really something of a miracle because God created this amazing world, not to mention the amazing universe. In that sense, we can say it's a miracle. We can also have three groupings, uh, medical miracles, rescue miracles, and salvation miracles. So what's a medical miracle? Well, a patient is very ill, very sick. The doctors are sure the patient is going to die. The next morning they come in expecting to find the person deceased, but the person sitting up doing well. And the doctor is amazed. He says, it's a miracle that he recovered. I don't understand it. I did everything I could, but it's a miracle. Sometimes we hear that word used that way. There are rescue miracles. An avalanche captures some skiers, and there's a particular skier buried. Quickly, people go over there and dig him out. They think he's already suffocated, but amazingly, he's still breathing. It's a miracle he survived that avalanche. 
We use terms like that. Salvation miracles. Some of you may be acquainted with a song by John Peterson called It Took a Miracle. I'll read the three verses and then the chorus. My father is omnipotent, and that you can't deny, a God of might and miracles. Tis written in the sky. Though here his glory has been shown, we still can't fully see. The wonders of his might, his throne, will take eternity. The Bible tells us of his power and wisdom all the way through. And every little bird and flower are testimonies too. And here's the chorus. It took a miracle to put the stars in place. Okay, you could read that. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. Okay, now what about this last phrase? But when he saved my soul... Cleansed and made me whole. It took a miracle of love and grace. Okay, we use the miracle that way. My brother came to know the Lord. It's a miracle that God performed in his life. There's no other way I can explain it. This man was dead set against Christianity. And almost overnight, he changed. God changed. It's a miracle. Now, it's only natural that we speak that way. It's difficult for us not to refer to certain things like that as miracles. But that's broadly considered. What we're dealing with in this series is more narrowly considered as God's special redemptive and judgmental activities related to his plan of salvation centered in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the events in the external world brought about by his, important word now coming up, immediate power. When that takes place, even as in creation, let there be light and there was light. Let the earth bring forth its vegetation. Let this happen, let this happen. God's word spoke and immediately it was done. In this series Even when we get to the miracles of Jesus, we're going to be using miracle in that narrow sense. These particular events that God brought about in his plan of salvation. Interestingly, the miracles in the Bible occur in basically three, four time periods. The time of Moses and the Exodus would be one. We have the plagues. Pillar of fire by, by night, pillar, pillar of fire, cloud by day. The opening of the Red Sea, the healing of the bitter waters, the manna, the water from the rock, and what happened at Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning. That all happened in the time of Moses and the Exodus. But then we jump ahead for several years until we get to Elijah and Elisha. And many miracles were identified with them, as I recall. Recollection is that Elisha had twice as many miracles as, as Elijah, as recorded in the Bible. With Elijah, you had the widow of Zarephath, fire from heaven, Ahab's death, uh, Elijah himself taken to heaven without dying, going directly to be with the Lord. With Elisha, you have the parting of waters, the healing of waters, the widow's oil, the Shunammite son, Shunamite woman's son, the handwriting on the wall. It, well, this is now I'm getting ahead of myself here. Naaman, Gehazi, the axe head floating, and what we looked at today, the horses and chariots of fire revealed to Elisha's servant. With Daniel, you have 
Interpretation of Dreams, Fiery Furnace, The Handwriting on the Wall, and Daniel in the Lion's Den, keeping the lion's mouth shut. So we have Moses in the Exodus, Elijah and Elisha, Daniel. In between these periods, you don't really have much. And then, of course, we get to the New Testament, and the fourth great period, the largest period with all the miracles, the most miracles, is the time of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the apostles. The great majority of them occur here. So this evidences, just the way they are in these four groupings, that God's miracles are not arbitrary, but in the interest of delivering his people and of preparing the way for the coming of Christ, culminating in Christ's death and resurrection and ascension and the establishment of the Christian church. There's an economy in their use. You'll notice with Jesus. You read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He doesn't just walk around and say, you're healed, you're healed, you're okay, you're good, you're good. kind of deals with the individual. He'll talk to one person, and then he'll talk to that person, perform the miracle, and say, your faith has healed you, go. And the individual, he's reserved, very reserved. And that's the way the, the miracles are in the Bible. Let me give you some definitions of miracles. There are several here. Clarence McCartney, an old conservative Presbyterian minister back, well, Presbyterian Church USA was beginning to deteriorate in the beginning of the 20th century, but McCartney was considered a conservative evangelical man. A miracle is an event occurring in the natural world, observed by the senses, produced by divine power, without any adequate human or natural cause, the purpose of which is to reveal the will of God and to do good to man. Lorraine Bettner, many of you are familiar with him. A miracle is an event in the external world wrought by the immediate power of God and designed to accredit a message or a messenger. Professor John Frame, I went to seminary with him. He was a year behind me. In fact, we both went to the same church my last two years, and they had a little old organ over there. It wasn't a pump organ, but it almost was. So he played the organ, and I played the piano for the singing in the worship service. He went on to greater things than me. He's written, he's written books, and he's quite, quite a knowledgeable man. A miracle is an extraordinary, visible, redemptive event ordained by God to reveal his redemptive purposes to men and to arouse awe and wonder. J. Gresham Machen, the figurehead founder of our denomination, professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary, and then later at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. <clears throat> A miracle is an event in the external world that is wrought by the immediate power of God. There's that word immediate again. Geisler and Turek, Christian apologists, a miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God through a messenger of God. Let me go with that. That's kind of a neat one. A miracle is an act of God to confirm the word of God through a messenger of God. And I throw this last one in, just interesting, by Henry M. Morris. A miracle is an event which is scientifically impossible, but which happens anyway. I throw that in there for your benefit. We talked earlier about the laws of nature. Let's think about that for a moment. Critics argue that the laws of nature, the law of gravity, for example, the most well-known one perhaps, um, 
they render miracles impossible, is there not a uniformity of nature? In other words, isn't nature always pretty much stays the same? With, with the sun so it sets, it comes up, rises the next day, sun over and over, the moon goes through this, its as, aspects of things. We have the seasons of the come and go from fall to winter to spring to summer, etc., over and over and over again. Um, if miracles occurred, it would upset the steadiness and reliability of the natural world. We would not have any sense of security. We wouldn't know what to expect tomorrow if there wasn't a steadiness of nature. Now, you're going to tell me, say the critics, that you're going to introduce miracles to upset this wonderful law of nature thing that's moving. Let's deal with that for a little bit. Number one, natural laws are not in themselves special forces in nature, independent of their creator. They are merely general statements of the way nature acts as scientists and others examine the natural world so far as we've been able to observe how things go. They are but mere abstract formulas. They don't have any concrete existence in the world. They're not eternal. They're not absolute. And most important of all, remember, they were created and sustained by God. The Creator is above His creation. You can't bring God down to our world and say, now God, you have to fit in with the natural forces here in this world, as we do. You need to maintain the distinction between the Creator and His creation. Secondly, natural laws are not always uniform because the Creator is under no compulsion to keep it that way. Why can't God Almighty, the Creator, set natural laws aside to serve His purpose? Which, as we have seen, is exactly what miracles do. Things go on pretty naturally. And then suddenly, here's a miracle, occurs, and then it's gone. And we're back to the natural way of things. God has stepped in, not as a deist, not that God is disinterested in the world and kind of step back. Every once in a while, he looks down and says, I need to tighten that up here a little bit, fix that up here a little bit. Now, these have a purpose, preparing the way for the work of Christ and salvation. Even Richard Lewinton, a Harvard University Darwinist, Said, has said, to appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured, that miracles may happen. Interesting statement. He doesn't believe in God, apparently. Um, he doesn't agree with miracles in the Bible, but he says, look, if you're going to believe in an omnipotent God, then sure, miracles could happen. So he plays right into our hands because we believe in an omnipotent God who can do miracles. Number three, natural laws do not give us a complete sense of security. Is the natural world really a safe place in which to live? Earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanoes erupting, all kinds of things go on. Fissures open up in a road and a car is swallowed. Just boom, just like that. Nature is not always that friendly to us. It can become very destructive, even as man can become very destructive with his technological inventions. We must remember that natural laws are simply instruments in the hands of an all-wise God in whom we must place our ultimate trust. 
And fourthly, natural laws are not ends, but means. They are used by God to display His wisdom, His power, and His goodness. W.G.T. Shedd, an old uh, theologian from times past, said, The order of the universe is a means, not an end, and like other means, must give way when the end can best be promoted without it. And I have this anonymous quotation, To view miracles as interruptions of the order of nature is not to believe the impossible, but to believe that with God, all things are possible. Now, let me close with this section on miracles and the Christian faith. What kind of New Testament will we have if we follow the example of Thomas Jefferson on display in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., is his leather-bound book in which he cut out all the passages having to do with miracles associated with Jesus. He pasted them in this leather-bound book, so there's no miraculous element left. This was the Bible, what was left, was the Bible that Thomas Jefferson read faithfully every day until he passed away. All he had was Jesus as a great teacher, but not of one who worked miracles. How sad for this great man, his last moments, the only Jesus he had to hold on to as he entered eternity was this non-miraculous person, person who did perform no miracles. That's a rather extreme way to approach it. Miracles are extremely important to the Christian faith. So if you, you say you're a Christian, probably all you do, I mean, we've got to hold on to the miracles of the Bible. First, miracles are not mere appendages to Christianity. It's not like a porch added on to a house. And uh, you have the house, and you decide to build a porch, and afterwards you say, oh, I don't think that's going to work. Let's take the porch down. Miracles are not something you sort of throw on to the Christian faith, but you really don't need that. It's a basic element of our faith the very essence of Christianity. Atheists cannot believe in miracles because they have no God to work them. Pantheists identify God with nature. So whatever happens in nature, yeah, that's their God doing miracles. Deists separate God far apart from the earth, as I mentioned a moment ago. They're far related, unrelated to what's going on in the earth, what's related in your life. You go ahead and live your life, but every once in a while, God might step in and do something. However, theists, those who believe in an omnipotent, almighty God, as we do from the scriptures, theists admit in a personal, self-existent God and the supernatural. Therefore, we accept miracles as his witness, as he chooses to do that, as well as visions, inspiration of writers, the writers of the scripture, and the revealed truth to them. Another way to put this is, is this way. As a Christians, expect God to do miracles. What kind of a God would you believe in, even Jesus Christ, if he never performed miracles? 
least I'm not sure I want that kind of God. I don't think he can very very much help to me in my needs. So we expect God to do miracles. So miracles are not mere appendages to Christianity, the heart of our faith. Number two, Christianity rests on three stupendous miracles. You might want to add one or two others, but the miracle of the incarnation, birth of Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension. Those are pillars of the Christian faith revealed to us in Scripture. Are these non-essential? Well, of course not. They are the center of it all. If you rule those out, nothing's left. You say, well, I don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin. That's pretty hard to accept that. You're telling me that Jesus, who died on the cross, came back to life? I don't think I can believe that. And then you say that after he's on earth for about 40 days or so, he went up in the air and disappeared and said he's coming again? Come on. Yet Christianity rests on those stupendous miracles. But once you accept those, then all the other miracles should be pretty easy to accept. Three. Miracles provide a context for the proclamation of the gospel. God has a plan of redemption for the human race, and miracles have been used, as I mentioned earlier, all the way along, beginning in the Old Testament, and especially reaching its crescendo, uh, climax in the work of Christ on the earth and the miracles of the apostles. And in that context... The message of salvation was developed and shared and proclaimed eventually and eventually inscripturated into the Bible. Information, the gospel is about information of something that's happened. It's good news. When you turn the news on, now I know we live in a day and age of fake news, all right? By and large, when we read the newspaper, we turn on the, the television or, or a radio for a newscast, we hear the, what it is, we read about it. For the most part, we accept what we read. Somebody might say, well, it turned out that wasn't true. But for the most part, we accept it. This happened. This happened. So it is with the gospel. It's good news. It's about facts, about something that happened. That Jesus was born a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He suffered on the cross, died for sinners. He was raised again for our justification, ascended into heaven, where he now rules the right hand of the Father and is coming again. That all is good news for sinners like us. And the miracles provide that context. Makes sense. If I'm going to be delivered from my sin, I need a great God. And he can do it. So in that sense, um, Peterson's song, it took a miracle of love and grace. Well, we can, we can apply it that way, I think. And number four, the miracles of the Bible are part of God's, this kind of supplements what we just said. The miracles of the Bible are part of God's wonderful, or full of wonder, plan of salvation. He himself enters our world supernaturally to accomplish and secure that which truly is impossible, the justification of our sins. So we can't put the miracles in an environment foreign to the way the Bible puts them. The the miracles of the Bible in the context of Scripture, in the context of the plan of salvation, we always have to relate, how does the miracle relate to the plan of salvation? How does the miracle relate to the gospel? Miracles are aspects 
of all that. To impress upon sinners the holiness of their creator, the necessity of repentance, and his power to affect transformed lives. These kinds of things are not due to natural laws, but to the supernatural grace of God working in our hearts. Let me close with these two quotations, again from Lorraine Bettner. Miracles are not to be put on a level with the tricks of a magician or of a wonderful faker, a swindler or imposter. Yet it is probably no exaggeration to say that nine-tenths of the opposition to the Christian doctrine of miracles is due to the fact that this distinction is not kept in mind. It is not the bare possibility of miracles which may happen at any time and in the hands of any kinds of people that we contend for, but miracles as an integral part of God's plan of redemption as that plan was made known to a lost and unbelieving race. That, we hold, was a sufficient cause for setting aside the ordinary laws of nature on certain occasions. And then C.S. Lewis. In the Bible, the reader is confronted with the doctrine of an all-embraced divine providence by God the Creator, Lord of nature and history, a God of power for whom all things are possible. Miracles are subsumed under this divine government, and so they are not to be viewed as actions contrary to nature. God's miraculous actions differ from His general providential operations in that they reflect the diverse mode of the manifestation of his power as he acts immediately upon the course of nature and history without seriously disturbing either. So I've run a lot of stuff by you tonight, but you'll notice these quotations are from very godly men, great scholars who have examined this subject, and they accept the miracles of the Bible. In fact, they say we have to. What other explanation is there possibly can be given, especially the way Scripture presents them very immediately, very clearly, very directly. Next time, I want to just touch another subject or two on the miracles of the Bible and then move in to some general considerations of the miracles of Jesus, not looking at the miracles, but what can we say about all of his miracles there. So we'll, in a sense, pick it up at that point next week. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are here uh, tonight because, as has been put by the hymn writer, the miracle of grace, your supernatural work in our hearts. Without that, we would be dead in our sins. We would be lost and headed for eternal perdition. So, Lord, accept our gratitude for your saving us from our sins, for giving us eternal life. We pray that as we study this subject, we may be impressed and educated but especially directed in a fresh way to serve a living and true God who loves his people and cares for us. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.